They're closing every day, hotels all over. So because it's it's they, there is no demand, there is no tourism. So, but I tell you, if I close, we have a lot of cost too. So so that's why I try to to keep open. You know. Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And you heard there a hotel owner in the southwest of Spain confronting a question that businesses and governments are facing in every country in the world which hasn't got on top of COVID-19. Which jobs should we try to save and which are already lost? Our Spanish economy reporter, Jeanette Newman, has been spending some time on the front lines of the battle to save jobs in the ancient Spanish city of Cádiz. She also found another Johnny Cash fan while she was down there All will be revealed in a few moments. Later on, you'll also hear the economists John Kay and Sir Paul Collier explain exactly why greed is dead. Could have fooled me, I hear you say. Well, you can listen to them explain their new book and decide for yourself. But first, here's Jeanette. That cacophony is coming from inside a factory at a storage shipbuilder on Spain's Atlantic coast. Dozens of welders, riggers, and engineers are piecing together five warships. It's their first big naval contract in years. For centuries, shipbuilding has been a vital part of the economy here in the Bay of Cadiz. The bay has a privileged position next to one of the world's busiest waterways, the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea through the Strait of Gibraltar. At its peak in the early 1980s, this shipyard employed nearly 4,000 workers. Demand was high for warships and oil tankers. Since then, South Korea and China have eclipsed Europe in Navy shipbuilding. Now, the shipyard employs around 600 workers, the same number it had in the 1880s. Juan Carlos Carascal oversees the factory at the shipbuilder, called Navantia. But always uh, looking for uh, more skilled people instead of a lot of manpower. Always looking for efficiency. As I walk across the shipyard, I see black smoke rising in the distance. Hundreds of furloughed workers at a nearby aviation company are burning tires. They're protesting impending layoffs triggered by the pandemic. Those desperate aviation workers lie at the heart of a debate in Europe, about how to wind down programs that have preserved millions of jobs. COVID-19 has upended the airline industry. We will no longer need to fly to attend every meeting in person. Some people think those protesters are fighting for an industry that might never fully recover. You could say they're the Spanish shipbuilders of their day. If that's the case, the argument goes, then Europe's governments and companies should rethink the need to keep spending billions to preserve such jobs. Yet others warn that pulling the plug too soon could lead to long spells of unemployment for workers in hard-hit sectors. That's something that many naval shipbuilders have also faced. Before we delve into that debate, though, some context on how European governments have responded to the pandemic. I spoke to Katerina Utemal. She's a senior economist at financial services company Allianz in Frankfurt. When the pandemic hit Europe in the spring, most countries wanted to avoid mass layoffs. So they put in place what are known as furlough programs. 
furlough schemes allow employers to reduce their employees' working hours instead of laying them off, and the government then steps in and replaces a large part of the lost income in the range of 60 to 100%. And why did European governments choose to do that? The idea is to retain human skills um, and to allow for um, a quicker um, snapback, let's say, of the economy because the workers are in place and, um, um, and are ready to go <laughs> as the recovery um, starts to unfold. The results um, of uh, furlough schemes in Europe are nothing short of remarkable. Um, at the peak of the crisis, around a fourth of Europe's workforce, or what we calculate as 35 million jobs in the five largest economies alone, benefited from these schemes. Compare that to the U.S. American companies fired millions of workers when the pandemic hit. The government then stepped in to provide more generous unemployment benefits. But they didn't try to prevent mass layoffs in the first place. Why did Europe do things differently? There are a lot of reasons. For one, many European economies aren't very dynamic. Once a worker is fired, it can take her a long time to find a job again. The furlough programs were meant to be temporary. But this crisis has turned out to be more of a slog than many expected. So Spain, Italy, France, and Germany keep extending the furloughs. That leaves them in a tough position. When and how do they pull back on their aid? There has to be this recalibration of um, the labor market support um, to target in particular viable jobs and less so what we have coined uh, zombie jobs. Because we think that in some cases, and um, actually we say that about every fourth worker that is currently taking advantage of a furlough scheme is at risk of not returning actually to the office or to the workplace. Francisco Romero and Mariano Serrano understand all too well the risks that Caterina is talking about. Both were among the protesting aviation workers I saw in Cadiz. I spoke to them and their wives at a nearby restaurant. They have been on furlough since March. Now, they might be laid off. We're going to be just the beginning. We're going to be the tip of the iceberg. Francisco and Mariano work assembling airplane parts. Their company, Alestis, is one link in a chain of aviation companies in the region. Of course their jobs are viable, Mariano says. We think in a matter of six months, if there is a vaccine in six months, eight months, things will keep working just like always when things get back to normal. But what if the slowdown in aviation isn't temporary? Economists say one solution is to retrain workers who are laid off to give them the skills they need to get jobs in a sector that is growing. I ask Mariano and his wife Manoli what they think about that. They shake their heads and laugh. <laughs> I've done more courses than, what can I tell you? I've done all kinds of courses. <laughs> I tried to put away all the books he had, and they didn't even fit on the bookshelf. Francisco was 16 when he began to work at one of the shipyards here. It was the 1980s. Two years later, the shipbuilder announced a restructuring. Francisco was out of work. He's had spells of unemployment since then. That's when he's done some of those training programs, building solar panels and wind turbines, learning to weld. Mariano agrees more training isn't what's needed. They both just want to keep their jobs. There's a ton of people in Cadiz who are well-trained, incredibly well-trained. 
But the thing is, that doesn't come with the key ingredient, which is industry. I want to emphasize that what Cadiz needs is more industry. Cadiz doesn't need any more hotels or bars. Mariano raises an interesting point. The pandemic has upended the aviation sector. But other industries are bouncing back. And so are Germany and other European countries whose economies rely more on manufacturing. Places like Spain, where the economy is powered by services, hotels, restaurants, bars, have been particularly hard hit. Most of the employees who are still on furlough in Spain work in the services sector. I wanted to know how companies and workers are faring as we head into low season. Tourism is important in this region. A hotel owner agrees to speak with me in Rota, a town that's a ferry ride away across the Bay of Cadiz. Once I'm there, I take a taxi. The driver is playing American country music. I've been in many taxis during my time in Spain, and I've never heard country music. Through face masks, the driver and I talk about our favorite singers. The wistful music seems to match the driver's mood. It's been a bad summer, he says. There haven't been many tourists, and trouble is brewing at the aviation companies. It's only going to get worse, he says. We arrive at the Playa de la Luz Hotel. Owner Stefan de Klerk comes out to greet me. The building where we meet was an abandoned 19th century tuna factory before Stefan's Belgian grandfather bought it and turned it into a hotel. We sit down in the restaurant. I ask him what's happening with his workers in the furlough program, known as ERTES in Spanish. They're starting to go to the ERTE again. They're going back. They're going back to the ERTES. Stefan had just closed one of his hotels the day before we met. Occupancy was only at 15%. They're closing every day, hotels all over. So because it's, it's, they, there is no demand, there is no tourism. So, but I tell you, if I close, we have a lot of costs too. So, so that's why I try to, to keep open. You know? Hotels that are closing and more workers in the furlough program mean less tax revenue for the Spanish government and higher costs. Remember, the state is paying a large portion of the salaries of furloughed workers. That puts Spain in a bind. The country already had a huge pile of debt and a big deficit when the pandemic hit. That limited its ability to offer financial support to companies and workers. At the same time, though, Spain had to respond decisively because it was one of the hardest-hit countries in Europe. Further complicating things is the fact that the Spanish economy isn't very dynamic. Economists talk about creative destruction. Let companies go bankrupt, for instance, because people will create new ones. But in Spain... Creative destruction usually just ends up meaning destruction. The labor market in particular does not rebound quickly, Stefan says. The employment laws are very strict and very yeah. and not flexible for the company. So Spain couldn't really afford to act decisively. But at the same time, it couldn't afford not to because the damage would have been even worse. Stefan is frustrated about what this fiscal predicament means for him. The Spanish furlough, the ERTE, is less generous than in some other countries. I look to Germany and to Belgium, and, uh, and, and there, yeah, the economy goes well, uh, much better than in Spain. And uh, like I told you, Germany is helping with ERTES until end, end of uh, 21, 
and Belgium too. So I think these countries, uh, they're, they're doing it better than us. Spain's program is set to expire at the end of January. Stefan says many hotels will go bankrupt if that happens. We are demanding that uh, it will be extended at least at March 21. And why is that important? Because we start the, the new season, the season starts for us in this area, starts around March, April. So if, if we keep that to, until March, maybe if, 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 if God help us, we, we will have a, a kind of a normal situation next year. So that's we are, we are, we are praying you now for that and we're trying to, to work for that. Leaving the hotel, I can see the shipyard cranes towering along the shoreline. A reminder that jobs, industries, and economies don't always bounce back as expected. Europe's furlough programs were meant to be temporary. The crisis has proved to be anything but, so the programs have been extended. It's likely that the scars from the pandemic will be deeper than we expect to. Jeanette Newman, Bloomberg News. You could hear there how a short-term crisis over jobs and the cost of government support packages has also been forcing Spain to confront long-term choices about the direction of the Spanish economy. The same could be said of Europe and the US generally. Now, two people who think that kind of debate is long overdue are the economists John Kay and Sir Paul Collier. You may know John. He's been a columnist for the Financial Times for many years. He's also my first boss a long time ago at the London Business School. He's written many excellent books, mainly about economics, including most recently the book Radical Uncertainty with the former Bank of England governor, Lord Mervyn King. So Paul Collier is known more for his contributions to development economics, though more recently he's written a modest book called The Future of Capitalism. We had an online conversation recently convened by the Royal Society for the Arts in London about their new book, Greed is Dead, which for an economics book contains a surprising amount of political philosophy. I started by asking John why they wrote it. So uh, Paul and John, thank you very much for talking to me. John, let me start with you just to get more of a sense of... uh, what this book's about and perhaps how, why you decided to write it. Yeah, this book originated, Stephanie, in a lunch we had in um, a Thai restaurant in Oxford called The Giggling Squid for some incomprehensible reason. And I was, um, as I've just recently finished the book you describe on radical uncertainty, while Paul, as you've also mentioned, had written The Future of Capitalism. And we were talking, and I, re- I was aware that what I wanted to do next was to write a, a book about something about business, emphasizing that the presentation of business essentially as a group of individuals who happen to find it convenient to get together every day and work together, failed to recognize that successful businesses, particularly the knowledge businesses we have in the 21st century, are made up of essentially communities of people who are able to solve problems together. That seemed to me a much more powerful way of thinking about business than the reductionist approach, which has dominated economics for the last 50 years. And Paul was interested in many of the same issues, but from the rather different angle of communities of place. So 
Um, what is a community of place? We're hardwired for community. Stephanie, you said we were drawing a lot on philosophy in the book, but we're also drawing a lot on um, modern evolutionary biology. And the news from modern evolutionary biology is really very good for people who believe in communities, both communities of work and communities of place. We're very distinctive mammals. We're designed, we're hardwired to bond to each other and for mutuality, for reciprocity, for pro-sociality. The big bad idea that we aim to demolish um, in modern economics is that notion that greed is good, which came out of the idea that humans were basically economic man, were greedy and selfish, and greed was therefore the fuel which got people up in the morning um, and fueled capitalism. If that was the fuel, greed was good. Well, it isn't. It isn't the fuel of capitalism. The fuel of capitalism is our ability to work together around a common purpose and to imagine and create. So we're, we're very well designed both for communities of purpose, whether they are communities of work or communities of place, and we're very well designed for radical uncertainty because if you're, if you're in a world of radical uncertainty, you need to work out what to do and we're hardwired for creativity. We're very imaginative. And so the fuel of capitalism is not greed. It's that collective common purpose and imagination and creativity. And when we say greed is dead, the normal response is to say, but look around you, the world is, is absolutely saturated in greed. That's, saturated in greed is actually the first, the opening sentence of greed is dead. What we mean by greed is dead is intellectually, the pillars that built the notion greed is good are now untenable. And so that's why we're saying greed is dead. We are now at peak greed because gradually these ideas will filter through. So let me turn just to pick up on John's cue of communities of place. Um, we need communities of place <laughs> because so much of our public policy and our lives are lived in place. Our politics is very heavily dependent on place. And what's happened recently is big spatial divides. We've seen it in Brexit, which was basically a mutiny of provincial Britain against London. We've seen it with Trump, which was basically a mutiny of provincial America uh, against the metropolis. And so rehealing that, that's what's really uh, needed in the in community of place, restoring community of place. Let me pass back to John, because we got lots of ideas about how to do it. You know, we're learning a lot about uh, this interaction of communities and place and work in the current in the current crisis. We, um, the three of us are able easily to this productive conversation together over Zoom. 
we're able to do that because actually we've met each other in real life quite frequently in the past. And quite a lot of businesses are discovering to their surprise that they can conduct business reasonably well um, over Zoom and other online aids like that. Would they be able to do that if people hadn't been able to meet each other, work together, talk to each other, form relationships with, other, with each other in the past? I doubt that. The community of place which happens in the office can be conducted online because it is a community of people who are used to working together. Did you come away hopeful uh, after writing this book? Because one could read it as saying, yeah, we, we really are in a bad way and I can't see a way out. We're not saying we can't see a way out, but we've been going in many ways in the wrong direction for, um, uh, in recent decades. In the business area, we went badly in the wrong direction uh, with the 50 years since Friedman wrote that notorious article, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Maximize Its Profits. The social responsibility of business is actually to produce goods and services that people want to provide satisfying employment uh, to meet the needs of the communities in which business operates. That's the social responsibility of business. And I'd contrast that, on the one hand, to the social responsibility of businesses to maximize its profits. But on the other, the social responsibility of business is not to do good. Social responsibility of business is to do good business. And that's true of all the other communities we're talking about. Now, as far as business is concerned, I think that the pendulum is at least swinging back in the right direction. It's got a long way to go before it gets to the, the central position it was in 50 years ago. Uh, but we are now getting a fairly satisfactory re reaction to that. And that's what business needs, uh, and business needs to stop describing itself in ways that actually are actually both repulsive and do not correspond to the reality of what successful business is actually like. I thought that was wonderfully bracing in the book that you point out that any company that's really tried to implement that very individualistic business model has tended to do extremely badly. Yeah, it's almost funny the extent to which that is true. <laughs> the classic, of course, was Bear Stearns, which was the, the, the business uh, that had a sign above its trading floor saying, we make nothing but money. And of course, what happened was in the long run, they turned out not to make that either. Uh, I've been writing a little piece for myself on called The Fall of the Icons, which runs through how the businesses which we would have regarded as paragons of good business 50 years ago, ICI, Marks and Spencer in this country, um, General Electric, Sears Roebuck in the United States, are one after the other these businesses have been damaged by essentially this individualistic approach to what businesses are like. And there are just so many cases. Uh, the most extreme case is actually Deutsche Bank, which has moved from being uh, the bank that was the powerhouse of financing German industry into a, essentially a failed US hedge fund. And for that to happen in 25 years 
is a quite extraordinary and entirely negative achievement. And to go back to a question, are we hopeful? Um, Greed is Dead is a prediction. Uh, it's a very hopeful book. Um, it says we're at peak greed. And why are we at peak greed? Because gradually ideas filter through. Um, ideas matter. And the ideas on which peak, on which greed was founded, these individualistic ideas, turn out to be just wrong. They're, they are against the grain of the new evidence from evolutionary biology. They're against the grain of the evidence from business performance. They're just not how we're designed to work well together. And those ideas will gradually filter through. Um, you see it in a tidal wave of, of, of new books, basically all along a communitarian theme um, by some very influential people across the board. And so I think intellectually, we are already comfortably past peak greed. Those ideas will take a decade to filter through, but they will. And of course, COVID is an accelerator because COVID is a splendid example of the need to come together. Just look around Europe. The most successful country, as far as I can see, is Denmark. Uh, it's had a, about the lowest economic hit and about the lowest mortality hit. So it's not even set it up as a trade-off. Do we save the economy or do we save people? It saved both. Why has it done that? Because repeatedly over the decades, Denmark has demonstrated an ability to work together for a common purpose. That's why on all the indicators, the subjective indicators of well-being and happiness, the objective indicators of lifestyle, it comes out as top in the world. And so along comes this new crisis of COVID and Denmark, unlike a number of other countries, has a very modest leader, a very ordinary person, very humble person, single mother. When she says we, people listen. I think a lot of people would wonder, for those countries that have gone down the individualist route, that have trashed many of these institutions and find it, with social media particularly, harder and harder to have single conversations around important matters and constructive dialogue, are you not concerned that we now have taken away the levers in those societies to get back to a better equilibrium, that we might in fact be trapped on a bad, in a bad equilibrium without any of the tools to be able to go back? I think that's right. I think there's, there's a real worry there. And one of the things we trace in the book is the way the, uh, the organisation of political parties, the historic organisation, essentially collapsed after communism collapsed, what we need is actually a rebuilding of political parties and political institutions around about some of the ideas we've talked about. The question which you posed right at the beginning, which is the question of what are economists doing writing about political philosophy? <laughs> and the answer to that, my answer to that certainly is, I don't think we've anything new to say about political philosophy, but what has happened is that over the last half century, economics became associated with a particular political philosophy, 
that was at odds with how successful business and economies actually operated. And we're trying to redress that. So thank you both very much, uh, Sir Paul Collier and John Kay. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on the ground reporting and analysis of the economic fallout from the COVID pandemic and anything else we think is important that's happening in the global economy. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, and wherever you get your podcast. And for more news and analysis through the week from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Jeanette Newman, Rodrigo Arduela, Alonso Soto, Laura Milan, Thomas Galtieri, John Kay, Sir Paul Collier and the Royal Society for the Arts in London. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.